<laughs> You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at Home and Abroad and we're at the Railway Museum of Eastern Ontario in Smiths Falls and I now am sitting with Graham Roy and we are in the Telegraph office Yes, and I don't hear any Morse code going or anything but first of all, welcome I do hear it coming. I do hear the Mars Club. Yeah, and this is called the Operator's Bay. Okay. And also the Telegraph Office. And as uh, you mentioned, my name is Graham. Um, I am volunteer. I've been here for my fourth year now. And before that, I was uh, a teacher and a university instructor. And my father was a railway telegrapher. So I grew up at the station with my dad back in the 50s and 60s. Not too far from here, actually. Um, very interesting education as uh, complementing my formal education because I was able to witness many of the uh, long gone practices of railroading and so after my retirement from education after 40 years I came here and asked for the job I always wanted and I was able to get it so if my father had still been living uh, he would be very um, Amused by the fact that I'm sitting here in a station that he, in, in which he worked actually in the late 60s. He was right. here very briefly. So I'm sitting on his stool, which came from the station where we were together. And um, I have a number of his artifacts that are around me that go into the running of this uh, office. So the operator's bay is where we communicate with other stations, other trains, we communicate with the public, sell tickets, the mail came in by train, we shipped parcels, we received express for people. It was the center of news for a lot of folks who didn't have uh, a radio or access to a telephone. And my primary job was to communicate with other stations for telegrams. People would come in and uh, send a message to a family member or a relative, or we re- receive telegrams on their behalf and get that news out to them. So the skill that I possessed, other than multitasking, would be Morse code and the ability to send and receive Morse, which is a challenge for anyone learning it. So I've been at it now for about five years, and I'm progressing. But the, the really good operators could send 40, 45 words a minute. Um, I'm probably around 10, 15 right now. Mm-hmm. But you can hear in the background Fast Morse, which is experienced operators. And uh, it was a, a re- I, we call it the original texting machine because people come in with their smartphones and I'll give them a message to send on their phone to a a friend and I will be here with the telegraph. So we start at the same time. Generally I can beat the person on the smartphone because when I send the message it's it's instantaneously Mm -hmm. received at the other end whereas they have to text it and hit send. So there's where the lag is. And you have only the one key. That's right. That's it. So if I'm opening my key and I'm sending, which is Perth, P-E-R-T-H, that's my speed. That's how I would, but I can progress to a, a faster speed. But you're only as effective as 
the skill of the other person on the other end. If it's a novice mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. they're going to tell you to slow down, slow down, slow down. So I communicate with the trains by flag, lantern, signals. We have a semaphore on top of the station, which is a two wooden paddles, one for each direction. Yeah. Topmost position is proceed with a green light. Middle position is amber, slow down for a message. And the um, bottommost position, uh, parallel to the track, would be stop. And it would be a red indication. The trains can see that at night. It's illuminated. It's um, visible for a mile if you're on straight track. And uh, that was really how I would stop the train. I have no radio. Um, and if I want to give the train a message, I have to use these wooden hoops. One is a closed hoop. Uh-huh. The message would be tucked in there. Yeah. And I would stand by the track. The, the train would slow down to maybe 50 kilometers an hour. Yeah. I plant myself, and he would put his arm through that and take the whole thing, take the message, read it, and then throw this down in a timely fashion outside on the, the ground, and I'd go and retrieve it. So he had two of them, one for the engineer and a shorter one for the conductor on the end of the train, on the caboose. Well, this is not terribly effective because uh, if you hung on a bit too long, you could either break his arm or pull him out of the cab, and not too good. So they invented this one with a Y, with a string, which would allow the uh, recipient to take the string and the message, and you kept the hoop. The hoop would be my primary means of communication with the trains, no radios. Um, Failing that, at night I would have a flare, a red flare or an amber flare, which would tell the train to do essentially the same thing. But safety was the first rule in any rule book, the safe operation of trains. Our clock is proof of that because the clock is set every day, uh, at 11 a.m. by telegraph and right now you can see the sign on the clock uh-huh. is 10 seconds fast well <clears throat> that's okay any more than 30 seconds and I'd have to have the clock repaired it's the same with my watch my watch has to be within the same tolerances okay now this watch is an old Elgin it's probably close to 90 years old right. it keeps very good time but it's still not as accurate as a $10 Walmart watch because of quartz movement, right? Yes. But these have to be cleaned periodically, and um, you can notice we operate on standard time. We do not use daylight saving time. Right. That's not. That's just not possible. Um, okay, so we have standard time, yep. which is um, all year round, and people have to get used to that between April and October to adjust their expectation of when the train will arrive. Um, In later years, we were allowed to use wristwatches that were railway approved. Uh, But time is everything. Mm -hmm. Because we run on timetable, the train can be late. Being early is not a good thing. Um, And all the track workers have really at their disposal is what we call a lineup. In the morning, you would type up when the trains were expected, all first-class passenger trains on time, so you could pretty well rest assured that was okay. But the freights, 
um, a lot of that was just by estimation and sound. Whereas today it's all electronic with GPS, uh, it's very safe. But back in the day, um, track workers operated uh, with one with one ear cocked, uh, you know, for, and you could be pretty skilled at picking out a train. So, Graham, how many trains, when things were at their peak, would have been going through Smiths Falls? Well, either in a week or in a. In a um, I'm saying I'm, I'm using this station as an example because mm-hmm. the other station in town, the Canadian Pacific station, was very uh, was more it was a busier station because it ran the line was from Montreal, Smiths Falls through Belleville to Toronto, double track, very very and then single track from Smiths Falls uh, west. Uh, our station, I'm um, using a timetable here from 1918, um, you might see four or five trains. A day. Okay. Um, towards the end of its life, there were passenger trains, one a day in each direction, but the times of arrival were not necessarily convenient. The railways were masters at confusion in those days, trying to cut passenger runs, and people didn't use the train. It's a self fulfilling prophecy. Let's make the schedule such that nobody can ever take the train. So there were freight trains through here, way freights, and a couple of uh, larger freights, but it was never a busy line. Um, The station is more grandiose than people would expect. Built by the Canadian Northern in 1912, and that company was absorbed by Canadian National in 1923. So, Graham, was it unusual to have a town like Smiths Falls with two different stations? Um, Yes and no. I can think of a few other examples. close to our location uh, but on in terms of being one on either side of the town um, not not necessarily as common in eastern Ontario large cities of course yes some places like Brockville would have um, a common station uh, very unusual to have two main lines uh, sharing a station I'm familiar with that in the states mm-hmm. for, to some extent but um, here it was either one or the other. Um, our station would have not nearly the passenger revenue of the CP station, but the Canadian Pacific uh, Passenger Service ended in the mid-60s, whereas here it ended in the late 70s. You mentioned how with the Telegram and Morse, how the operator here would be the one, the hub of local news in many ways. When a telegraph came in, was there would have been a dispatcher, someone who would then have to be tasked with bringing that down to knocking on a door, or did people arrive up? Or it must have been a hub in every respect. Yes, that's a good question. Um, in a small town like Smith Falls, if people had a phone, you could give them a call directly and say, "We have a telegram waiting for you." Or if you knew a neighbor. You probably did. You knew where everyone lived. You call a neighbor and say, please go over and tell Mrs. So-and-so. Failing that, um, in the big cities, there were fleets of uh, bicycle messengers, usually young boys, Montreal, Ottawa, who would pedal out to that location and provide the uh, telegram. Um, In Smith Falls, not so much. It might be on an ad hoc basis. You have a small group of boys who might be willing to make a few a few dollars a week doing that but for the most part you would see 
Or you could drop it on your way home if you lived in town. Mm-hmm. You could drop mm-hmm. it off. Um, this was a this was a fairly white collar job, uh, although a lot of the operators didn't have a lot of formal education. But for the most part, you wore a shirt and tie. You were representative of the company. The agent uh, who was responsible for the office would be the company representative dealing with local industry. Smaller stations, it would be the agent operator. It would be the same job. So uh, there was a fair amount of respect attached to your knowledge of telegraphy and um, your ability to represent the company effectively because people would bring their business. Mm -hmm. And if not, they'd go elsewhere. And given the level of skill that's involved, would there have been more than one person in this job in Smith's Falls? Um, at the CP station, was open 24 hours a day. There would be three shifts of eight hours each. Right. Um, during my um, research into this station, it's unlikely the hours of operation would exceed eight hours. We'd be an agent operator on duty for that time. Um, I don't believe it was ever a 24-hour station. Because I'm thinking in terms of, again, something like the telegram or telegraph, that... Um, it would then need to be consistent across because if you got here yes. at five after five, you couldn't get it out like anywhere along the line um, uh, because there was no one to receive it at the other end. Well, let's say you were sending it to a larger center like Ottawa. They would be open mm-hmm. 24 hours a day. If it were to the next station over like uh, Richmond or uh, Newburgh or... Um, Harrowsmith, any of the smaller stations, no, you were fairly limited. But if you really had to get the telegram sent, then you would go to the Canadian Pacific station, which okay. was open 24 hours. You, the rates were pretty standard uh, between the railways, so you could get... It really didn't could matter. communicate. Yeah, it didn't matter. So now if somebody comes up here, they're going to come in, they're going to see the office, and they're going to see all the um, items that would have been appropriate at the time, and that's indoors. So when I look out the window, I'm looking at, um, there's rolling stock all around here as well. Yes. And a great selection of rolling stock. Um, how many are from how early back, or what's the oldest train do you know that's here? Um, I think the oldest car we have is one of the cabooses. Um, it would be probably from the 1920s. It's Canadian Pacific caboose. The <coughs> red caboose here in front of the station is in circa 1941. Steel caboose, 1967. Yellow caboose, 40s. Um, Snowplow, probably from the 40s. Um, Anything, some of the older boxcars over here maybe predate that. You can usually tell by the wheels. If they have a cover plate on the bearings, that indicates friction bearings, which are quite old. Today all trains have rotor bearing, which rotate as they go by. You can see them. Um, and the, the trucks, the wheels themselves, different styles indicate different eras. So some old thing called arch bar trucks they have a definite shape of an arch they would be 20s 30s the positioning of the brake wheel if it was vertical on the car that's very very old Um, most cars today have a small ladder halfway up with the brake wheel that indicates that it's a fairly recent car and for safety reasons a lot of these older cars were taken out of service and uh, uh, today it's all very safe and these they're well maintained 
Where was the big manufacturing of, of railway engines and, and rolling stock in this country? Um, there were several. Uh, Montreal uh, had the Montreal Locomotive Works, which was under contract to Alco, American Locomotive Company in Schenectady, New York. They built under license for them. A lot of these diesels were built by MLW. There was also the Canadian Locomotive Company in Kingston, which is an hour from here, and they, they built Fairbanks Morris diesels. Mm-hmm. And Fairbanks Morris was a, a company that produced a lot of engines for submarines during the Second World War, opposed piston engines. Then they got into the locomotive business, went out of business in the... Um, I'm going to say the early 60s. Uh, they were competing against General Motors and Alco, which were the two main. General Electric came on the scene. So uh, at one time, a lot of the railways had a mishmash of different makes and models. And within recent times, really the only two manufacturers left are General Motors and um, General Electric. Right. So a lot of the parts are standardized. The maintenance is standardized. But our engine here is an Alco. It was built in 1957. Um, still operates quite effectively. We track down spare parts periodically for it. And uh, we have one uh, excellent arrangement with a fellow museum, sister museum in Saskatchewan, which is uh, quite far from here. They have an identical locomotive to ours on property. It is dead. It's non-operable. But they've pulled out parts on occasion that we need and they'll put it on the Greyhound bus and they'll send it to us. So you scrounge parts wherever you can. And when somebody comes out to the museum here, they get the opportunity to climb aboard the rolling stock? Um, Yes, uh, within reason. We don't want people climbing on the steam engine Mm -hmm. because there are a lot of sharp edges, but people (coughs) can get on the platform if the engine's not running. Same with the gabooses. (coughs) We are a hands-on museum. Um, we're the premier hands-on museum in eastern Ontario. Uh, some places you walk in and it's all static display, don't touch. Uh, here, yes, you can, within within reasonable limits, you can climb on the equipment and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. get inside the equipment and look at it. And in, in some instances, if I have a former tele- telegrapher who comes into the office, then I'll let him or her sit down and operate the telegraph. So you mentioned earlier on that when you get some of the uh, younger generation coming in with their smartphones and you encourage them to send a text message and do you, you do your Morse. Um, the whole process that existed then and now that exists on a smartphone where literally the reservation, the confirmation, the barcode for the ticket <laughs> and everything else is off to one device. Yes. Um, you must see some interesting reactions. Well, yeah. And the phone. Oh, yes. Uh, and that phone works. That's a, they, they have a hard time conceptualizing uh, how it would even operate uh, with the dial. So we used to say uh, back in the day, no, nobody wanted a phone number with zeros in it because it would take you forever to, <laughs> dial, to dial the zero. So I remember the old, the old agent where my dad worked at the station, the old station agent, his phone number when the dial phones came in, he had two zeros in it, and he used to complain all the time about this fact that he had zeros. Well, the biggest thing that I try to get across to people is the reduction in the number of jobs 
that were involved because at one point you had passenger reservation, you had ticket sellers at the station, you had uh, operators selling the tickets. Um, oh yeah, I mean, it, so just think of it. You know, you're communicating on an app on your phone, and you're able to get the uh, ticket. And you have the barcode, and you print it out. Well, where are the middle people? They're out in Silicon Valley. They're in Silicon Valley. That's right. <laughs> so it is. It is. It is. It's as, as I like to say. It's not much fun, but it's efficient. Yes. Yes. And um, to that end as well, like I know some old radios around. I'm fast. This this one that you have over yes. in the, the Motorola. <coughs> That was uh, one of the first portable radios to be used in the early 60s. Uh, train crews hated them because they had um, huge heavy batteries. Uh, the strap was way too small. You had to sling it over your... You couldn't put it over your shoulder or over your arm. It was constantly banging into you. It was very poor range. Uh, it was next to useless. And um, today, of course, we have small compact two-way radios. It's, it's a different ball game altogether, but um, the Motorola model here, uh, I contacted Motorola in the United States a few years ago, and I said, I'm looking to replace the battery, and they didn't even have a listing for the battery, and I ended up talking to some executive vice president, and I said, look, I have an icon here, I'd like to get it running, I just need a battery. Um, He said, well, we've got one in the museum, but these batteries were... um, I don't even think they were rechargeable at the time. I think they were just, you know, the old style. Yes. Um, uh, well, they put it, well, they wouldn't have been lead acid. No. So, long story short, uh, I no, I can't get it running. Not right. that I'd want to, but it's it's quite a. You'd probably have nobody to talk to. Uh, no. <laughs> it's only maybe one or two frequencies, two channels, yeah. whereas the uh, radios we have today uh, go from uh, one thirty-six uh, kilohertz to 174 right. well then you have all the permutations of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of channels that you can use and even a, a handheld uh, unit is more uh, effective than it's going to ever hope to be so Graham if somebody is going to come up here mm-hmm. and visit the museum uh, you're open 7 days a week 7 days a week from um, Victoria Day weekend which is the 3rd weekend in May until the 1st weekend in October Canadian Thanksgiving and open by special uh, arrangement uh, before and after that. We also operate uh, the first weekend in December for North Pole Express, where Santa Claus comes in on the train, and I am in here to send messages to the North Pole for the boys and girls on the telegraph for their gift wishes. And it's proven to be extremely popular. So the last uh, several years, we've had no snow, uh, luckily, but we somehow hope that one year we will get inundated, not a blizzard, but something substantial so it's a little more festive. Right. Um, and, of course, operating our locomotive uh, in the winter is different because it's slippery on the pop. You have to, you have to take extra precaution. But uh, people, if last year's any indication, one day, uh, one Saturday, we had a 1,000 people uh, for a town this size. And this year we're running both days, Saturday and Sunday. So it's uh, it's a different dynamic. Um, and um, opening normally about 10 a.m. in the morning? 10 a.m. till 5 p.m. Right. Um, we've had weddings 
here. We had a wedding uh, last year on site um, with the bride and groom coming in on the caboose. And the ceremony was in the breezeway between the two buildings. And then the reception was in the waiting room. And it was one-stop shopping. It was a destination. And they were train fans. So uh, we, we've, we've established ourselves as a, uh, a destination for, for weddings, photo shoots. Uh, we had a, a group here last August from um, the uh, TV Ontario, which is more or less um, the public broadcaster mm-hmm. for, for Ontario, uh, who came and they had a, a show called um, Mystery Files where two teenage hosts solve a mystery each week and uh, their task was to solve mystery of the code and that episode will be on TV Ontario uh, fairly soon so we're going we're going to get a link to that and we all starred in this production it was quite wonderful so um, didn't realize how difficult it was to work in the uh, uh, multimedia industry because of so many different takes you're wonderful here allowing me to do one take but um, it, it took us um, four or five hours to do maybe ten minutes of uh-huh. video uh-huh. and uh, taught me the the need for discipline and timing and you know just making sure it sounded realistic and indeed. not stilted indeed so. and the one other thing then is we've covered that uh, between May and October uh, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know off the top of your head of a website? Yes, uh, it's RMEO, Railway Museum Eastern Ontario, dot org, O-R-G. Uh, that is our main website. If you do a search on Google for RMEO and then look for our Facebook page, and that's where the bulk of the info will be for booking rides and news and things like that. Graham Roy, I want to thank you for taking the time. It's been fascinating. Thank you. And uh, most enjoyable and educational. And I would certainly urge anybody to come and enjoy and be educated. And thank you very much. It was my pleasure.